1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been, for the last several weeks now, we've been looking at identity what the Bible says about us. A lot of us, we have our identity tied up in other titles, other things, maybe what people say about us, maybe what we want people to think about us. And so our identity is, is wrapped up in what we want, what we think, what we want people to think about us. And we spend so much time focusing on those identities and striving for those identities that we miss the true joy and peace and comfort God has for us in understanding and living in the identity that he has given us. And there's a lot of things that God says about you as his child. Now, people love job titles. We like to have a, an, an official sounding, a, a fancy sounding, an important sounding uh, job title. In a, a, a book I was reading about business management, uh, one bit, one, uh, the author suggested that if you want to have your people work harder and be more passionate and do more work for you, then you should give them the title of vice president. doesn't matter what they're vice president over. You know, vice president over keeping the toilets clean. Just whatever. Just if you call them vice president, whatever, they will do more work for less money because they feel important. People love job titles. John is the vice president of music around here. <laughs> but, and, and people fall for that. People, they, they, and I, I fell for it. When I was a teenager, I fell for it. I, I got a job uh, the summer before my senior year. I got a job uh, at Food Lion. And they, they hired me to be a bagger, but they hired me for the daytime shift. They didn't have any day. And if you've ever bagged groceries at a grocery store in the daytime, there's not a whole lot going on. There's not a, not a lot of people come in. Uh, every once in a while, you'll get, you know, some of the senior citizens coming in and they'll do their shopping and usually the first of the month and then the rest of the month, you're dead during the day. But they hired me like, we need you to work the daytime shift for bagging. And he said, here's what we're going to do. You seem like a sharp guy. You seem like you know what's going on. I'm going to make you the head daytime bagger. I thought, woohoo, head daytime bagger. All right. He says, you are in charge of all the daytime baggers. I thought, man, this is going to be great. Show up my first day at work, and I'm like, hey, where's all the other baggers? Oh, you're it. You're the only daytime bagger. But you're the head daytime. So I was in charge of myself. So he goes, but he said, he goes, as the head daytime bagger, you're, you're responsible for more than just bagging groceries. We, we have a lot more that we need you to do because you're the head daytime bagger. And, man, I did some of the stupidest things. I, I, I literally, he hadn't, because the manager, he's like, oh, well, you're the head daytime bagger. I need you to do this. I cleaned out the dumpster. The dumpster. I mean, he's like, hey, the day just dumped the trash. I need you to get in there and spray the dumpster down and make it clean. I'm like, it's, it's a dumpster. But I'm the head daytime bagger. <laughs> I got responsibilities. So I climbed in that dumpster and I washed that thing down. They, had, they were doing some remodeling. He's like, here's what I need you to do. The, all the baseboards underneath the, the shelves need to be scrubbed. And so he's like, we're going to get you a dolly. And he gave me a dolly and this little spray. And I was crawling on my belly on a dolly for like a week, scrubbing these baseboards. I'm like, man, this is stupid, but I'm the head daytime bagger. There's responsibility that comes with that title. I pressure washed the side. Just all kinds of just stupid, ridiculous things. I did more work for the same minimum wage as the nighttime baggers. But I felt compelled to do it because I had a title. 
A lot of people, they, they love titles because they find their identity in their title. It, it's more of a description of what they do. It becomes a description of, of who they are, of what they truly are. In their minds, their title is a description of who they are. So we, we tend to drift towards titles that make us feel and make us sound more important. Fancy titles give us a sense of identity. They contribute to our self-worth. I wasn't just a bagger. I was the head daytime bagger at Food Lion in Rustburg. I had a title. Now, as a Christian, what title should we cherish the most? What title should we tell people we are the most? Child of God? Son of the King? What, what title did the early Christians use to describe themselves? Look in Philippians chapter number 1. <coughs> Bible says in verse 1, it says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. Now, of course, this is the Apostle Paul writing. Him and Timothy are writing to the, the church at Philippi. and Phil, uh, He's right now in prison. But Paul, is he's writing to this group of believers, the people that he went to, he witnessed to. He, he, he saw them get saved. He established a church. And he, he did a great job. And look, whenever someone talks about the Apostle Paul, we always call him the greatest New Testament Christian. He never called himself that. He never said, Paul, the greatest New Testament Christian. He said, Paul, the chiefest of sinners. Paul, the worst among you. Paul, the guy that doesn't understand why God's using me this way. But the most common title he ever gave himself is right here in Philippians chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He could have given himself a lot of titles when he's writing to the church of Philippi. Paul, the apostle of Jesus. Paul, the evangelist who's got the gospel to the unknown world. Paul, the prisoner because of my love for Christ. Because no, no, Paul, I'm a servant of Christ. They didn't give the title that many would have expected. They gave themselves a lowly title. They begin with the statement of their identity. Paul and Timothy, all we are are servants. Now, the word servant here in the Greek is literally the, is the Greek word doulos. And it literally means a slave that is willingly bound to another. It's used elsewhere in the Bible as a bond servant. Now, out of all the titles, they chose to introduce themselves as willing slaves to Christ. Now, in Jewish culture, they, they had this, this, this policy, this procedure, this this. this this thing they would do where if someone had hard financial times, if someone was indebted to someone else, they could sell themselves into slavery. Now, when we, when we, hear the, when we think about slavery, we, of course, we hearken back to, of course, the slavery in America and the slave trade. From, and it's just, it brings up terrible images and, and horrible things like, oh, man, that's a terrible thing. Slavery in this culture and at this time and in this, this way was drastically different than the slavery that we think of. So someone you could, you could sell yourself to the person you owed money to, and this was often the wisest thing to do because the, the master was required by Jewish law and by common sense to take care of you, to provide for you, to treat you well. 
to be good to you as you served him. So it's not the slaveries we think of. Servants, they were treated like family. They were provided for. They were cared for. And many people viewed selling themselves into slavery as a viable option to take care of themselves and take care of their families. If you can't get a job, if you don't have land, you can't farm, you can't do anything else that people did to make money, you could sell yourself to a wealthy landowner and he would provide for you, he would take care of you, he would give you, give you an income and you would take care of your family and you would become part of his family. So a lot of people view doing that as a viable option. But God gave in the, in the law, God gave the, the seventh year, God stated that the seventh year all debts would be completely forgiven. So what that means is if you sold yourself into slavery, you would serve for six years, and then no matter how much you owed, no matter how hard you worked, your debt would be forgiven and you would be freed. So worst case scenario, you sell yourself into slavery, you serve for six years, your debt's forgiven, you're freed, you can do whatever you want to do. But a lot of people, a lot of people who, who were slaves didn't want to be freed. Life with the master was better than the life they had before. Many of them, they were so treated so well by the master that they loved him. They loved his family. They took care of his kids. They protected him. They watched over him. And so when the master would give them, come to them after six years and the seventh year and say, the, 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 this is the seventh year, your debt's forgiven, you're freed. A lot of slaves would, would say, well, sir, I don't, I don't want to be freed. I want to stay here. Life with you is better than anything I have out there. And I want to stay here. And my family loves your family. And we want to stay here and serve you for the rest of our life. So what they would do is they had a ceremony. The, the master would take a, an awl, like a, a nail. And the, the servant would lay his earlobe on the doorpost. And the master would nail a hole through his ear. Yeah. Yeah, you think getting your ear pierced hurt. But that was a, a mark that everyone who saw that servant from that day forward would know he is serving his master out of love, not out of obligation. He doesn't have to be there. He chooses to be there. He willingly gave up his life outside the master's home to stay with the master because he loved him. That's what Paul says he is. He says, I willingly give up everything my life was before, and willingly I serve the master because I love him. They love the master, and Paul loved the master. So like Paul and Timothy, as Christians, our most precious title should be servant. I am a slave, a willing bondservant, of Jesus. Why? Because before Christ, you were bankrupt. You had no hope. You had a tremendous debt on you that you could never pay. And Christ, in his love for you, gave himself for you. He came with a perfect life, died a sinless death on the cross, was buried and rose three days later to pay for your sin debt. And he's invited you into his family and he's adopted you into his family and you were bankrupt without him. And Christ, in his mercy, he purchased you and he made you his own. He bought you, not with silver or gold, but he purchased you 
with his very own blood. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, for your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus gave you a new life. He gave you a new home. He gave you a reason to live, and he marked you as his through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 13, and Sim says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We stay with our master because we love him. We serve the master, not because we have to, because we love him. Paul says that's the greatest title you can have a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So how does our identity as a servant impact our lives? Well, first thing we need to look at some things. Let's first of all look at the example of serving. The example of serving. Now turn over to John chapter 13. Now Peter and James, they joined Paul and Timothy in identifying themselves as servants or slaves or bondservants of Jesus Christ. They, they opened their letters proudly proclaiming themselves as doulos, as bondservants of Christ. Now, Peter walked with Jesus for over three years. He saw firsthand Jesus live the example of being a servant because Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of everything, when he came to earth, he did not come to be served. He came to serve others. And Peter saw the example of Jesus serving those of God in the flesh, serving his creation. He heard Jesus speak passionately about serving others, and he, he watched as Jesus lived it out in his life. Peter learned from Jesus that serving is fundamentally Christian. Look at John 13, verse number 1. <clears throat> now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour was come, that he should depart out of, his, out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them from unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was to come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, and he took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was, guard, he was girded. Now, of course, this is the, the Passover supper, the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And we've seen many times where Jesus came into this Passover feast. And, of course, the Passover was a, a very precious time in Jewish tradition. And they had certain things they do. And Jesus, during this Passover time, he institutes the Lord's Supper. And he changes how they do the Passover and gives them a new ordinance. And he gives the, the bread as his broken body and the, the, the wine as his shed blood. And so he's, he's doing these, diff, these different things. But then at the end of the supper... He does something drastically different. Now, they're in a, of course, we know the scriptures, they're in a borrowed room, which means there's no servants there. If this was a room one of them owned, they would have had a house servant, a servant to, to serve them the food and to make sure everything was taken care of. And one of these servants' job, and it was the lowliest servant's job, was to wash the feet of the guests. Of course, in this time period, they didn't have sneakers and shoes like we did. They, were, they had sandals, or some of them were even bare feet. And they would walk on the dirt roads, and it's you got to understand there there were no sewers, 
There were no storm drains. The streets were filthy. You're walking through all kinds of just yuck. And so your feet would be just disgusting. And the servant's job, the lowest servant's job, was to wash the guest's feet. To wash off all the grit, grit and grime and dirt and dust and all that other stuff. Now during this time, during the meal, the disciples, they begin to argue about which one of them is the greatest. I'm the greatest disciple. Oh, no, I'm the greatest. And they're just, they're arguing back and forth about who's the greatest, who's going to have the, the biggest position in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, I'm sure he was disappointed in them because he'd lived his life with them to show them that greatness was not in puffing yourself up or having a position, but greatness was in serving. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. So he, he time and time again had taught them this. And here they are, once again, not understanding his teaching, not grasping his teaching. They're arguing about who's going to be best. And so while they're arguing, Jesus gets up, takes off his robe. He wraps himself in the servant's towel. He gets a bowl of water. And he kneels down in front of the disciples. And he begins to wash their feet. The hands that created the world wash the dirty, disgusting feet of the disciples. God in the flesh knelt down and washed the feet of his creation, even, even Judas. And he knew Judas had already betrayed him. He knew what Judas really was. But he kneels down and he washes the feet of his disciples. He served Judas. When he's, washing their, when he's done washing their feet, he puts his robe back on, he returns to his seat, and he says this, look again in verse number 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord. And ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is greater than me, he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if you do them. The Gospel of John is the only Gospel account that does not record any of the parables of Jesus. John looked at Jesus' life as the parables of themselves. Jesus' life was a parable. Jesus' life was a teachable moment. And he viewed that the master, the Lord, the king of kings, washing the disciples' feet as the greatest parable imaginable on serving. As a follower of Christ, you are challenged to wash feet. Not literally. Don't get concerned. And I'm not going to bring out a bowl of water. I'm going to say, you wives, you need to massage your husband's feet from time to time. Amen. Husbands, you should massage your wife's feet from time to time. Amen. That has nothing to do with the serving. But anyway, you ought to do it. It'll work out good, I promise. But you are challenged as a child of God, you are to serve. God asks you to serve others, to embrace your identity as a servant. He has handed you a towel and a bowl of water and says, if you've seen me serve others, you serve them too. Servants serve. A non-serving Christian is an oxymoron. You are a servant, and your identity 
is to serve. Jesus even says, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Because it's not enough just to know it. You've got to do it. But if you know to serve and you do serve, you'll be happy. If you, if you know, that's Jesus says, happy are you if you serve. So we see the example of serving. Secondly, let's look at the blessing of serving. Jesus told his disciples they would be blessed, they would be happy if they served. And that applies to us as well. We know we're supposed to serve. We know we're supposed to, to wash other people's feet, so to speak. We know we're supposed to, to be, to give ourselves of others. And so we receive blessings from serving as well. Now, of course, there are eternal blessings. There are crowns, there are rewards in heaven. But let's be honest, we are, we are, 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 are humans. We don't want rewards later. We want them now, right? And it's like, hey, you'll get this crown in heaven. Great, but what you doing for me today? There are blessings today from serving. First of all, there's happiness, there's joy, there's peace, there's comfort in knowing you are doing what God has done. There's a, a tremendous blessing from knowing that God is using you to be an encouragement and help to other people. Experiencing God overflow out of your life to serve others is a greater blessing than anything the world has to offer. There is a blessing in serving that you cannot get any other way. But too many Christians ignore that, reject the blessing, and are content to sit back and observe. These Christians, they're following the example of Michael. That's David's wife. Man, aren't you glad the, wives, the names of the Old Testament aren't, aren't you glad your wife's name's not Gomer or Michael? I mean, I don't think anyone's name, you know, we got Gomer Pyle. That's the only Gomer I really know of anymore. But can you imagine if you, you, meet, you see a pretty girl across from you, you go up and say, hey, how you doing? What's your name? Well, my name's Gomer. It's nice meeting you, Gomer. See ya. You know, you go to a girl, hey, what's your name? Michael. It's 2019. A girl says her name is Michael. You got to be careful. All right. But this is not that situation. So her name's Michael. Michael, of course, was Samuel, Saul's daughter. And she married King David. In the second Samuel chapter 6, there's an incredible event happening in the history of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant is coming home. Years later, or years earlier, the, the Ark had been lost in battle as King Saul took it out to try to, to try to use it for his advantage. And it was stolen by the enemy and it had been gone for many, many years. And now the Ark is finally coming home. David has gone down to retrieve the Ark and he's bringing it back. And it's a, it's a joyous day in Jerusalem. People are celebrating. People are singing. People are dancing. It's, it's an incredible day. God has come back home. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13. And it was so that when they had they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Man, it's an incredible scene. Adrenaline is pumping. People were shouting. Music was playing. The king is dancing. People were excited for the ark to come home. They were celebrating because the presence of God was once again back where it it belonged. The entire house of Israel was involved. Everyone was thrilled and wanted to be a part of the celebration. The Jewish historian Josephus, he wrote that there were seven choirs assembled before David in the procession. Some people carried the ark. Others helped with food preparation and distribution while others sang and played instruments for God. There were plenty of opportunities to serve and everyone was involved in the celebration. Everyone 
except Michael. Chapter number uh, 16, verse number 16. It says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Michael was just watching. She was just observing from a window while everyone else served, while everyone else was worshiping, while everyone else was involved doing something. She's just sitting back, observing and criticizing. You know, it's hard to criticize when you're involved. It's hard to criticize when you're doing something. When you're part of it, it's hard to say, those people don't know what they're doing. But it's real easy to criticize when you're just sitting back and watching. And that's what she was doing. She was just sitting back. She was watching. She was criticizing what was going on. She watched and she lost the opportunity to be part of something great. She was a spiritual moocher. She was going to benefit from God's presence without doing anything to help when it came back. She wanted to benefit from a church that have a thriving kids' ministry and a growing nursery without helping out in those areas at all. She wanted to benefit from a church that contributed to their community and, and reached out without actually having to do any of it. She wanted to benefit from a church that was blessed because of their heart for missions and their support for missions without actually ever giving to missions at all. She wanted to benefit from a church that had, was active with lots of programs and Bible studies without actually going to any of them. She wanted to benefit from a church with an incredible music program without ever singing or playing an instrument to help in it. Say, man, preacher, are you talking about me? No, I'm not, but God may be. If that bothers you, that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. Michael didn't serve, and she missed the joy of serving. She missed the blessing of serving. She missed the presence of God. And if you study the scriptures, she sit back, she's sitting back, not doing anything, just criticizing. David comes in, honey, isn't this exciting? The ark's back, God's back, man, let's, let's celebrate. And she criticizes him for how he was serving. And if you study the scriptures, from that moment on, David who loved Michael, she was his first wife, had nothing else to do with her. Never spoke to her again. Never had her in the same house again. He stayed married to her, but he kind of pushed her aside. She lost the blessing of serving. Non-serving Christians are miserable Christians. That's why Jesus said, if you know how to do these things, if you know to do these things and you do them, You'll be blessed, but only if you do them. We see the example of serving. We see the blessing of serving. And thirdly, let's look at the act of serving. So how do we live in the reality of being a servant? What does it look like to stop being an observer and to get busy serving? Well, first thing we got to do is we have to serve the master's family. The spawn servant, he chose to stay with his master because he loved his master and wanted to express that love through service. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he was showing them the full extent of his love for them. The servant's service to the master, however, it also included serving the master's family. The servants cared for the children. 
The servants protected his family. God wants us to serve the world around us, but he also wants us to serve his family. And the church is his family. Am I saying that you should invest your time in serving the church and serving God's family? Yes, and so is Jesus. Jesus says, you can't love me and serve me without loving my bride and serving my bride. We serve by serving the master's family. You cannot serve him without serving his family. And God has given each of us a unique spiritual gift. And one reason is so his family will benefit from our contribution. The family suffers if you choose not to serve. The family suffers if you forget you are a marked servant of the master. So how do we serve? We serve the father's family. So how else do we serve? By managing God's grace. In the Jewish culture, the master would entrust a part of his livelihood, a part of his, his, his income, a part of his business, whatever it was. Maybe he, had, he owned property. He would entrust some portion of what he possessed or what he took care of. He would entrust it to a servant to manage. And the servant would give the responsibility to manage an aspect of the master's business or maybe manage a portion of his land. And as God's servant, God has entrusted us with managing his Grace. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, Every man has received the gift, even so minister the same to another. So what God's saying is, hey, I've given you a spiritual gift. And look, we've all got different spiritual gifts. We talked about it in Sunday school today. It had nothing to do with this. Didn't even realize that until this morning. But we've all got different spiritual gifts. Maybe you're an encourager. Maybe not. Some of you, we all got the, the, the gift of criticism. That's not a gift, all right? That's something the devil gave you to tear people down. So that's all. I got the gift of criticism. No, you don't. You got the gift of people not liking you is what it is. But maybe you got the gift of encouragement encouragement, the gift of, of, of blessing. Maybe you got the gift of giving, the gift of helping. There's the gift of, of hosting people. And, and just, we've all got something God has given us to use. And God says, I gave that gift to you, not for you to hoard up and keep for yourself, but for you to give it to others. But then he continues. So minister the same, as, the same to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When you serve and you serve God's family with what God has given you, you are ministering grace to those you're serving. Why? Because God has given you grace. And he didn't give you grace to keep it up and hog it for yourself. He gave you grace to give to others. Because let's be honest, every one of us here needs some grace. We need grace from each other. We need grace from God. We need grace to help encourage each other. We are stewards of God's grace. We manage his grace by giving it to others. And we do that through serving. As you serve others, you give them God's love, God's compassion, and you give them his greatest resource, his grace. In the Old Testament Israel, a master comes to his servant one day to have a conversation he's been putting off. He says, you've, you've served me six years now. I appreciate everything you've done for me, but it's time to set you free. Now the servant, he knew this day was coming. He's been looking at his calendar too. And he was prepared for this. So he goes back, to, he talks back to the master. He goes, I don't, I don't want to leave you, master. I love you and I, I love your family. 
I want to serve you the rest of your life. I want to serve you and your family faithfully. So the master and the servant, they go out to the tool shed. Master gets a nail. Servant puts his ear on the table. Master hammers it through. Sounds painful. I'm sure it was. But the master and the servant have never been closer. Because the servant isn't serving the master out of obligation now. He's serving the master out of love. He doesn't have to serve. He chooses to serve. The master served the servant by adopting him as a family member. And that expression of love forever marks the servant. The servant serves out of love for the master. The foundation of Christ's command for us to serve others is not out of the fact that he served us, is out of the fact that he served us by adopting us into his family. Again, in John 4, 13, 14, If then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. What Jesus did for his disciples in the upper room is a picture of what he did for us. He took off his royal robes. He humbled himself. He stooped to our level. He wrapped himself in humanity. He served us by dying for us, by being buried for us, and by rising again for us. He served us out of love, and he asks us to serve him, to serve others, and serve his family out of our love and devotion for him. The early Christians, if you asked, hey, how do you identify yourself? They'd say, I'm a doulos. I'm a bond servant. They proudly bore that identity. They embraced their identity as a servant and their identity impacted how they lived their lives and how they treated each other. Are you proud to be a bond servant of God? The reality is you're a servant. The response is serve your master. 